Let's bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask His blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, you say that your Word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it discerns and evaluates our thoughts and intentions all the way down to our heart. So we pray that by your Spirit, you would be among us now, that you would make your word effective for instruction, for encouragement, for consolation, for correction and rebuke, for equipping and training in righteousness, that each of us would be ready and made adequate for every good work that you have planned for us to do because we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for those good works. Would you say your word is the bread of life that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from your mouth? So feed us now, nourish us together. Strengthen us. Make us whole. Use your word to heal, to give hope, to renew life as only you can do. Would you say you are watching over your word to perform it? So would you perform your word in all these ways right now? We pray, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Display to us again, afresh, even this morning, the power of your word. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. What we say and do is revealing. This is one of the reasons that we encourage hospitality in the congregation between believers, because we want you to know each other. We talked about that this morning in our discipling class. It was brought up this morning by one of us that one of the ways that we get to know each other best is just by having each other in our homes. It's revealing to us. It helps us get to know you. It helps you get to know us. The host gets to know the guest. The guest gets to know the host. And when we serve together, same things happen. We start to get to know each other. Things come out of us that we notice about each other. Some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad. Some of those things are indifferent. But it's by spending time together that we get to know each other. It's by doing together and talking together that we see each other. And that we get to know each other for who we really are. And not just who we thought each other were. Sometimes we have wrong understandings or expectations of each other. And yet by spending time together, those wrong expectations or understandings are disabused and clarified. And so we can know one another better. Well, we're going to see in John 21 this morning, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. John 21 Jesus is going to reveal himself. And again, this is Jesus as the risen Christ now. He has already been crucified. He's already been raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. He's already appeared to his disciples twice. And now a third time he is going to reveal himself to them. And this narrative in verses 1 to 14 is framed on either end by John saying, this is how Jesus revealed himself to them. So it's bookended with Jesus revealing himself, which of course begs the question, what did he reveal about himself? And we're going to answer that question this morning. We're kind of going to answer it a lot. We've got a top 10 things this morning that we're going to see Jesus revealing about himself. Now they're, they're short. This isn't, this isn't going to take all afternoon, but we do want to maximize our time together in God's word this morning. So Ten things that Jesus reveals about himself in this encounter with his disciples. Now, before we start, we need to recognize that Jesus has just said 
in the passage prior, in chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, as the Father sent me, so I send you. He's just commissioned them. So this fishing miracle is not a mere physical provision miracle. You could read it very flatly like that. And of course, this miracle did literally happen physically, historically. It's a real miracle. This is not just a metaphor. It really happened. This is not just a myth. It's history. But just like all the literal historical miracles that John records of Jesus, it carries a spiritual point, as was already pointed out in the service. Jesus is revealing something of himself, and he is revealing something of himself in relation to the apostles and those who will trust their testimony after them. But again, this is not to randomly spiritualize a straightforward text. It's to read that straightforward text in the context of what Jesus has just said and done and what he's about to do in the book of Acts. He has told them elsewhere, I will make you fishers of men. He has told them just now that he is sending them into the world with his message in order to continue his mission, forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in Jesus' name. And now, it's time for one last field trip with his students. So follow along with me as I read out loud for us John 21, verses 1 to 14. After this, after he had commissioned them, after he had told them, I am sending you as the Father has sent me, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. I should read that differently. Let me read that verse again. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. First thing Jesus reveals to them about himself is his indispensability. His indispensability. He is indispensable to them and to their mission. They cannot do without him. They cannot throw him away. They cannot just dispense of him any way they wish and go on with their lives. The disciples are back in Galilee. Peter's now referred to as Simon Peter, almost as if he's stuck in between those two identities, his old identity, Simon, and his new identity given to him by Jesus, Peter. In verse 3, he decides for himself, I'm going fishing. Now, man, oh, man, in the whole context of the book, for Peter to just be like, well, I'm going fishing, that seems like a really mundane way to almost end the book, right? Like fishing, (laughs) it just raises a question in your mind, doesn't it? And I don't think John answers it. We don't really know why Simon Peter decides to go fishing. Maybe he's aimless. 
Maybe he just kind of doesn't know what to do about the resurrection. Like Jesus was just raised from the dead. And he's like, well, I'm going down to the beach. Who's coming with me? I got to, I'm, I'm hungry. Or maybe it's just, well, even apostles have to eat. Like they're fishermen. They're hungry. It's breakfast time. Whatever the case, Peter leads and the others follow. But they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, these are professional fishermen. Like, this is where Jesus found them in the first place, fishing. And they're out all night long, and they come up stone cold empty. And Jesus, suddenly walking on the beach, sees them offshore on the boat, about 100 yards out. And he knows who they are, but they don't recognize who he is. Now that might be because he's 100 yards offshore. Might be because he has a different resurrection body. But that's not really the point as John understands it or emphasizes it. He asks them, not just do you have any food, kind of like open-ended, He doesn't just ask him, hey, how'd you do? How'd you make out? What's the take? The form of his question expects a negative response very clearly. A better translation would be, do you not have anything to eat? You don't have anything to eat, do you? He is confronting them with their failure right within their perceived area of personal and professional competence. You came up empty, didn't you? You failed, didn't you? Admit it. And they have to say, no. We got nothing. So Jesus tells them in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find. Now, if you don't know that it's Jesus, you might have taken offense at being told how to do your job. Like, if I showed up at your workplace... If I came and I'm like, hey, man, I think, I think you did that spreadsheet wrong, dude. Why don't you try this way instead? Hey, I think you're managing that person totally wrongly because, you know, I can see that he's this kind of personality and not that kind of personality. You're treating him wrong, so you're not really getting the most out of him. Why don't you do it this way? I think you'd be like, uh, <laughs> why don't you go back home? <laughs> but the disciples do it, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. So at first, they're unable to catch any fish at all. And now, without even knowing that it's Jesus, at his command, they obey, and they come up big. Now their problem is not they don't have any fish. Now their problem is we're just hoping that the net doesn't break, and we can hardly haul it all into the boat. Jesus is indispensable to them and to their mission. In the words of John 15, 5, which has already been prayed, apart from me, you can do nothing. Same Greek word, nothing. And Jesus proves this to them on their own vocational turf on the water. Yet this is not just about the fish, is it? This is not just about their vocation. Without Jesus, they will fish for men and come up empty, just as empty as they came up the night before. No one will be converted. No one will grow. But with Jesus, with Jesus, there is the prospect of a great catch. Without Jesus, we catch nothing. With Jesus, we are inundated. Here again, friends, this is why we must pray. We must relate to Jesus. We must be with him. He must be with us. We must obey him. We must ask him. We must not alienate him with sin and neglect of him. Prayerlessness, though, is the tacit attempt to do the work of Christ in the power of the flesh. Christ must make himself present with us for revival to happen. We must abide in Christ. Christ must abide in us. 
This is why we cannot attempt to vanquish our besetting sins without replacing them with devotion to Jesus and reliance on Him. You can't will yourself to holiness. You can't do it. You will come up empty. I don't care how moral of a family you were raised in, you will not be holy from your heart if you do not abide in the holy Jesus. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Nothing. All self-reliance is empty. We cannot rely on our own discipline, on our own training, on our own own experience, or even on our own spiritual giftedness. Because without the head, the body dies. You might be able to do without an arm or without a leg. You might be able to be an amputee and have a full life. But if you are decapitated, you're done. You can't live without Jesus as your head. A church can't live without Jesus as its head. Jesus is the one we cannot do without. You can do without me. You can do without Jeremiah. We can do without a lot of things and people in this church and in this world. The one thing you cannot do without is Jesus. So we have to admit the powerlessness of self-reliance. In both personal holiness and public ministry, we have to realize and reject the sinful pride of moral, spiritual, and ministerial self-reliance. And then we have to replace that with reliance on the ever-present, ever-powerful, ever-living Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And that means that we must bow to his authority. Second thing he reveals about himself, his authority over them. Jesus commands them in verse 6, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will, be, and you will find. That, by the way, is after the pros had pulled an all-nighter in the boat and come up empty. Again, that may have felt to them a little like telling a professional electrician, why don't you try the power button? And do the on-off thing. And again, at this point, they don't even know it's Jesus, which to us makes their compliance even more remarkable. But John's emphasis is that we know it's Jesus' word, even though they don't know it's Jesus' word they're obeying. They don't even know it's Jesus' word that they're obeying. And it still works. All that matters to John is that it's Jesus' authority that they're obeying, and they reap the benefit of it. Jesus is revealing his authority to them. He has authority over them in order to command them so that in obedience to his authority, he might bless them so much that they almost can't handle it. You might not have seen that coming. He wants to command you so that you will obey him, so that he can bless you, almost to the point that you can't handle it. Hmm? Is that how you think about Jesus' authority over you? Is that how you obey it? Is that what you expect out of obedience? Friend, Jesus has authority over us to command our obedience even when we think we are operating in an area of personal or professional competence. Where we assume that we don't need him to tell us what to do or how to do it. Responding well to this authority is crucial to the success of the apostolic mission and in the mission of the church still today in making disciples of all nations for Jesus. There are all sorts of ways we might think to gather unbelievers and multiply converts, but Jesus has the authority to tell us where to cast the net and how and when. Our submission to His authority is the way to blessing, even if we had wished He had shown up earlier and told us to cast the net earlier on the other side and gather the fish 
without us having to wait all night. So again, look, friend, look at how Jesus uses his authority here. He uses it to bless. He uses it to provide. He uses it to instruct. He uses it to prove himself able and trustworthy to us and for us. It is good morally and it is good practically. It is good for us and it is good to us for Jesus to have authority over us. Cast your net on the other side. And look at when he comes to them with his authority. It's not right when they get out on the boat. It's not at sunset. He makes them wait all night. He knows what he's doing. He comes to them with his authority only when they are at an utter end of their own self-reliance and competence. Do you think they would have obeyed him if he had shown up earlier? They only submitted to his authority once they had already exhausted their own. What is indispensable is not just Jesus' presence, but his authority and our obedience to it. His authority is both over us and for us, and it helps when we recognize that our obedience is not only to Jesus' authority, but to his omniscience, his all-knowingness. That's the third thing that he reveals to them, his omniscience, his all-knowingness. Jesus knows where the fish are. Jesus knows where the fish are. And he knows when they're going to be there. He knows when the boat will be to the left of the fish so that they can cast the net on the right side, as he said. He knows when the disciples are going to come to an end of their own competence and are going to be predisposed to obey him. And here again, look at how good Jesus is. He's using his omniscience, not against them, but for them. He is serving them, providing for them, teaching them all at the same time because he knows all things. Christian, Jesus knows where the fish are, both literally and figuratively. He knows where the unbelievers are who he wants us to reach. He knows where the believers are who he wants us to teach and disciple. He knows where the future pastors are that he wants us to train. He knows where you were. And now here you are. Jesus knows where the fish are, even when the fishermen are frustrated from coming up empty, being out in the boat all night. He knows how to bring us to an end of our self-reliance. He knows when to show up. He knows where to direct us. So brother, sister, maybe you are frustrated from your apparent lack of evangelistic fruit in your own life. Maybe it's two in the morning for you, and your net is empty. And you thought you knew what you were doing in evangelism. And you did it as well as you could, and you tried as hard as you could. And everything is failing, and everything is going sideways, and that person just seems to get harder and harder to the gospel, not softer and softer to the gospel. And you don't know what to do. And you're at an end of yourself. And you don't know what to say. And you feel evangelized out. And your heart is hungry for conversions and for good fruit from your parenting and for progress in the gospel from your conversations with unbelieving friends and family. Jesus knows that about you. He knows it. Just keep obeying his commands and let him bring you to an end of yourself. This is Christianity. You're not allowed to rely on how great you think you are or how great the gifts God has given you. You're not allowed to trust in that. We have to trust in Him and especially in His power. Fourth, His power. 
Fourth thing that he reveals to them, to us, is power to make them successful at gathering. Jesus doesn't just know where the fish are. He has the power to gather them there and to float our boat right up beside them. And he has the power to make his disciples succeed in their gathering. They gather so many fish that the apostles aren't even able to haul it all in. Yet later in verse 11, even though there are so many fish and they're so big, the net doesn't break. That's like a miracle within a miracle. And the power behind all of it is Jesus. These fishermen come up empty all night until Jesus tells them, cast a net on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, they've got more than they can handle, and yet the net doesn't even tear. This is supernatural power. It's divine power. And it didn't arrive on the scene until Jesus arrived on the beach. And it didn't matter how good a fisherman Simon Peter and his buddies were. Until Jesus showed up, nothing was going to happen. And that was part of the point. That was part of the lesson he wanted them to learn. Apart from me, as good as it, at it as you may be, you can do nothing. Jesus is sovereign. He overcame death, remember? He can overcome anything. All this should be encouraging both to the apostles and to us with a view to gathering of disciples for Jesus. Jesus knows where those other prospective disciples are. He has the power to bring them to us and us to him. And isn't that the story that we see being told in the very next book of the Bible in Acts? You see it time and time and time again. Acts 8, 39 to 40, when Peter had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, excuse me, Philip, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, but Philip (laughs) found himself at Azotus. <laughs> you just find yourself at Azotus. We'll just kind of pick them up. Oh, oh. You're going over there now. I think that was a miracle. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until they came to Caesarea. Right? Spirit of Jesus puts him with the, with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's done with him with the Ethiopian eunuch. Picks him up. Now you're in Azotus. Preach the gospel there. Because I've got people for you to preach the gospel to. That's how it works. That's the sovereignty of the risen Christ sending his spirit, doing his work among his people, through his people, with his people. Acts 10, the spirit gives Cornelius a vision to send for somebody named Peter. And then the spirit tells Peter about those same three men whom Cornelius sent looking for him. And that's the whole beginning of the mission to the Gentiles. Acts 16.6, the Spirit of Jesus forbids Paul and his team from going into Bithynia, so they go down to Troas instead, where the man of Macedonia appears to Paul in a vision, and that results in Lydia's conversion and the conversion of the Philippian jailer and the church plant at Philippi. You see, time and time and time again in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God connecting the people of God to people who need to become the people of God. You've got to trust that He's going to do that with you. You've got to pray that he would. Acts 18.10, Paul is in Corinth testifying to Jesus' divinity and resurrection. And the Lord appears to him there and directs him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many people in this city. I know who I have here who have not yet become my people, but they're going to become my people by your preaching. So you stay. I know what's going on. I know what I'm doing. I know where I put you and I know why and I know who I'm putting you with. I know where your boat is, and I know where those fish are, and you're right next to him. So don't leave. Keep preaching. God's Spirit knows where God's prospective people are, and he will lead us to them and them to us. Often in response to our prayers. So let's not get discouraged in the middle of what you might feel like is an all-nighter out on the sea. 
Let's not despair of finding fish. Jesus knows where they are. Jesus knows who they are. He alone has the power to gather them into one place, to bring us to them, to bring them to us. And even though our nets may not be the strongest, He can enable us to gather them and steward the catch so that not one of them is lost. Are we helpless with Jesus? without Jesus? Yes, we are. Are we ignorant without Jesus? Yes, we are. Are we powerless without Jesus? Yes, we are. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But with Him, all things are possible. And that is one reason, among many, that He is worthy of our devotion. Fifth thing He reveals about Himself. His worthiness of our devotion. Verse 7, as soon as they realize they can't haul in the full net into the boat as they normally would, John realizes and says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, by the way, How did Jesus reveal himself here? Does he wait? How did John recognize Jesus? Did he put on glasses so they could see him 100 yards away? Did he squint? Oh, that's Jesus. Yeah, it's him. It's him. It's his profile. I get it. That's not how the text reads, is it? How did John recognize him? By the power of Jesus' word. He heard Jesus say, cast the net on the other side. They do it. They get this huge catch of fish. And it occurs to John, (laughs) I know who I'm dealing with here now. Right? It's the power of Jesus' word. And that is how they recognize his worthiness of their devotion. Well, once Peter recognizes Jesus, he can hardly contain himself. He puts back on his outer garment, which he had taken off for work, and the ESV translated just right when it says he threw himself into the sea. He cast himself into the sea. The word for through there is the same one for casting the net, which occurs twice in verse 6. Jesus tells them to cast the net. They cast the net. They catch the fish. They realize it's Jesus. Peter now casts himself into the water. Now, the mechanics here are kind of murky. I don't know why he would put on his outer garment, which he had already taken off, in order to jump in the water. That's a weird thing to do to me. I don't know. Some say he was girding himself with it, like he was, he was uh, tucking it up under uh, his other garments in order to use it as a serving towel, as if he was going to go serve Jesus when he got onto shore because he had now realized it was him. Others say he was only wading into the water? I don't know. What's clear, though, is that Peter thinks Jesus is worthy of this kind of devotion, that as soon as he recognizes it's the Lord, (laughs) he just jumps in the water and tries to get to him. Like Now he's like, I don't know if he's swimming, I don't know if he's wading, but he's the only one who jumps out of the boat and into the water. Like, I can't, I think it's going to be faster for me to do this, Like, but I'm not waiting on the boat thing. I just want to go at my own pace because I think I can get there faster to him. Whatever the case, Peter is falling all over himself trying to get to Jesus. He does it again in verse 11. Jesus tells them to bring some of the fish they had caught so that they can all eat together. And who is the one that volunteers to haul the net ashore full of 153 large fish? It's Peter. I mean, he's kind of acting weird, right? But it's because he's so devoted to Jesus. He just wants to, he just wants to do for Jesus. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly what Peter's thinking here. Maybe he's trying to make up for his denials. Maybe he's just glad to see Jesus again a third time after his resurrection. But Jesus has once again proven that he is worthy of Peter's devoted service and attention merely by the power of his spoken word obeyed. Christian, when was the last time that you jumped at the opportunity to spend time with Jesus. You had a free moment, some free mental space. You had the chance to read your Bible, meditate on it, see what Jesus is revealing about himself in Scripture. You had the chance to pray, maybe. You had the chance to read a good book about the Bible or the Christian life, either on your own or with 
some other brothers or sisters? Jesus put you in a frame to read or study or pray or be with God's people. Did you jump at it? Was this your attitude to spending time with Jesus? Had an opportunity to serve him? Did you jump? Being with Jesus is a really big deal to Peter. This should be a big deal to you and me. When Peter sees Jesus, and Jesus tells them all in the plural, you all bring some of the fish, that's a command to all of them. But you know how that usually goes, right? A command to a number, whether you're a boss or you're a dad or a mom, like you know, a command to everyone is kind of a command to no one, right? You can tell your kids or your employees, hey, you know, paper in the printer needs to be refilled. And nobody moves. Because <laughs> everybody's like, well, she should do it. He should do it. I did it last time. But Peter jumps. Peter doesn't have to be told specifically. He jumps. Same thing when you're helping somebody move, right? Hey, next thing to move up the stairs is the 500-pound desk. All of a sudden, everybody's got their hands full. I got these pillows. Sorry. (laughs) Pillows are really awkward to carry. But not Peter. Peter jumps up at the chance to serve. Jesus tells them all to do it. Peter's the only one who wants to use it as a chance to display the devotion that he thinks Jesus deserves. I'll do it. Let me do it. This is a lot of fish. It's a lot of big fish. This isn't little minnows. This is 153 large fish. And Peter wants to be the one to drag it through the water onto the beach because Jesus is worthy of Peter's devotion. There's a sweetness to this. There's a humility to this. There's a unselfconsciousness to Peter's service and willingness, isn't there? He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. I'll do it. I got no problem with that. Jesus is worthy of our devotion. Peter knows it, and Peter acts like it. I think we know it. Do we act like it? Do you act like it? When there's 153 fish to be hauled to the shore? And the call goes out, someone needs to do this. Who's jumping? Or are you eager to take responsibility for serving? Or are you eager to avoid taking responsibility for serving? Hoping that someone else will step up and love Jesus more than you do. Christian, there is fellowship with Jesus waiting for us in the midst of of our service to him. Peter knows it. Sixth, Jesus reveals his mercy to them. He reveals his mercy to them here, his mercy for all their sins and failures. In verse 9, when the disciples all get to shore, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, wait a minute. Something's not adding up here. There's fish and bread already on this charcoal fire. But they haven't hauled in the catch of 153 fish yet. So where did these fish come from? Where did Jesus get these? Are you telling me that the risen Jesus Christ went down to the local bodega and picked up some fish and chips? Now, John doesn't tell us where he got them. John leaves us wondering Where did he get these fish and these loaves of bread? But the way John has told the story up to this point, all the way through the gospel, leaving us wonder where he got them makes us think that the way he got them was wonderful. Kind of like in John 6, when he multiplied the bread and fish. And look at what he's cooking it on, charcoal fire. Only other time we see a charcoal fire in John's gospel is the one where Peter denied Jesus three times the night before his crucifixion. This is Jesus' mercy, redeeming that image for Peter. Jesus is revealing his mercy 
for the disciples' failures against him, his, their sins, their disloyalty to him, by redeeming the symbol of the biggest failure of all 11 of them, Peter. Now, maybe Peter was trying to redeem himself again by jumping into the water and then hauling the full net to shore. We don't really know what his mentality is. We can't kind of psychologize him. But here, Jesus chooses to give Peter a better memory of a charcoal fire, and he associates it here not with failure, but with fellowship. Friends, Jesus is way, way more merciful than you and I think. He's way more merciful than we assume he is when we know we have committed a sin and we're wondering, is it okay for me to walk up to him? Can I walk up to him on the beach right now? After what I did, after what I said, what I thought, what I wanted, what I started to pursue and he pulled me back from, does he still want me to walk towards him? But he knows all of our sins, just like he knew the apostles' sins and failures. He knows all the ways that we have failed to be loyal to him. He knows all the circumstances that have surrounded our sins and our failures. And still, he is kind and thoughtful towards us in view of our sins to him and against him. I mean, in Jesus' darkest hour, Peter denied Jesus three times by the light of a charcoal fire. And you would think, you would think, Jesus was had no other use for a charcoal fire. <laughs> right? You know, sometimes you get hurt in your past, and there are images, associations in your mind that you think, I associate this image with that person sinning against me in this really deep, harmful, cutting way. And I don't ever want to have anything to do with that image again because it reminds me of how I was sinned against by that person. You may have that image in your mind right now. And you think, I don't ever want to, you know, you... Conversation at a restaurant. Never want to eat at that restaurant again because that's where they said this to me. That's where that relationship ended. I mean, we, we sell houses for this reason, right? Spouse dies, sell the house. Loved one dies, move away. I don't ever want to feel that. I don't want to be reminded of that. I don't want to experience that. I don't want that brought up. Every time I look at that thing, But Jesus brings that very thing up for Peter so that Peter can reassociate it with something good, with Jesus, with loyalty to Jesus and fellowship with him. So look, he, he knows, Jesus knows all of this stuff about you and about me, and he is still thoughtful towards us in view of our sins against him. Because now Peter comes ashore. What does he see but a charcoal fire with fish and bread and Jesus cooking for him. Waiting for him. Welcoming him. Come here, man. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it in. Sinner, do you see the Savior? Do you see him for who he is? I'm afraid you don't. I'm afraid you don't see Jesus for who he is. If you are reluctant to confess your sins to him, if you are reluctant to pray, if you're reluctant to read your Bible after you have sinned, you have no idea how merciful this Christ is. Why do you think he died for you? Why do you think he rose again for you? He died to atone for your sins. He died to be raised again for your justification. He died to be glorified so that he could intercede for you in groanings too deep for words. He died so that he would put out his spirit into your heart to cry out to him, Abba, Father, in just that moment where you need him. He's merciful. He is merciful. Don't avoid him. He's not avoiding you. Look at him. Look at him right here in Scripture. Look at his mercy for weak and sorry sinners. With all his authority to command, he commands us 
to come to him with all of his knowledge to find he is the most knowing friend you could have in all his power to direct all things to his ends he provides for us with that power so that we might have table fellowship with him he is thoughtful to restore us even when we have been thoughtless towards him he remembers he redeems you have sinned greatly against him I have sinned greatly against him you know it I know it that is why we are all here and he still invites you and he will still serve you and he will still save you not only from the penalty of your sins but from the power of your sins over you he still wants you he still knows that you are out there in your little boat he knows you've caught nothing all night he knows that apart from him you can do nothing he knows you have done worse than nothing he knows you have done him wrong and yet here he is calling to you sinner calling to you lapsed Christian from the beach building you a place to warm up and dry off and get your fill and just be with him. We sing a song that has the line, He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in him. It's exactly what's happening here. And you need to get that through your head and through your heart. Jesus pursues you to forgive you so that you can rest in him. He wants the warmth and thoughtfulness of his love for you to break your cold, guilty heart. And yet there's more to it than even this because he includes us in his mission. Seventh thing that he reveals about himself includes us in his mission. Verse 10, while he could have provided all the fish and bread himself like he did in chapter 6, he tells them, bring some of the fish, get a load of this, that you have just caught. <laughs> that you have just caught. That's some way to put it, right? They come up empty all night. He tells them to try the other side of the boat, and only then do they fill the net. But he says some of the fish that you have just caught. Yeah, technically they caught the fish. Technically they caught the fish. But we all know what happened there, right? And yet he includes them, and then he tells them to bring some of the fish to contribute to the feast. You provide for us with me. Bring some of yours, too. I've got some fish and bread on, but bring some from what you caught, too. It's hard not to be reminded of when he multiplied the five loaves and two fish in John 6 again, except here the disciples don't just distribute in this case. They catch and provide with Jesus. And that is looking forward to the whole book of Acts, the mission of the church, the saving of souls. It's exactly what he's sending them out to do. Told them, John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Send you to do what? To preach his message of repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to continue Jesus' mission in the world of gathering worshipers for the Father's name. And this is what it's going to look like. It will all be based on Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, Jesus' knowledge, and his mercy but he will include them and us in his work. This is a stunning privilege. Bring some of yours too. To work and eat alongside Jesus, to see him use what we have had a hand in doing by his grace, even though we know full well that he's the only reason that we were able to do anything at all. Christian, Jesus wants to include you in doing his work alongside him. He wants to enjoy shoulder-to-shoulder work in the gospel with you. And he wants to enjoy the fruits of your labors with him together. He wants you to have something to bring to his table by his grace. Even though he will have you know that only he can enable you to find it and bring it. And maybe that's what you're going through right now is coming to an end of yourself and your own competence and your own self-reliance 
so that you know anything that happens from here on out, this is all of God's grace. It's not my giftedness. It's not my stick to It's not my gritting it out. It's not my gritting my teeth. It's Jesus. Eighth, his generosity, his provision to him. Jesus' generosity is also on display here. The net Peter hauls ashore is full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, I know we might really want to find some awesome, cool, secret meaning in the number 153. I mean, I kind of did, right? Like, 153, man, that's a really specific number. Well, that's got to mean something. I'm, I'm not sure that it means much more than what John says, it's mean, says it means. And there's a lot of guesses out there, too. Like, big-time journal articles have been written on 153. And how, if you count backwards in the Hebrew alphabet and then put it into Greek or Aramaic, then it means Jesus Christ, Son of God, or something like that. It's like, wow, that'd be awesome if that meant that. Um, I just don't see John doing that in this chapter with this number, right? Like, if John means you to do that, he's got a really funny way of telling you to, to, to take it that direction. All John does with the number, in fact, is to marvel that the net's not torn, even though there were so many. Not the net wasn't torn, even though it meant Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. It's just that there were so many of them. The meaning of the number is simply the magnitude. That's it. That's all there is there, man. It's a lot of fish, and they're big. Jesus loves simple abundance. He provides fish, just run-of-the-fish, run-of-the-mill fish. It's not a delicacy. But they're really nice, really big fish. This is the kind of fish you'd be like, yeah, I want that one. At Sam's Club or Costco, you're picking out your trout. You're like, I want that one. That, those look good. Those look really good. That's actually huge. Let's put that. I can't even fit that in the cart. That's a nice big one. A lot of meat on that. And there's a lot of these fish. Jesus loves to give generously because it proves that he is good like his father is good. Look, when you, when you give generously to someone else at Christmas or on their birthday or some other occasion, what's in your mind right before you do that? You, you want to you prove to them, hey, I love you. Hey, this, this gift is a measure of my esteem and value of your friendship and your relationship to me and my family. I want to prove to you my heart to you with the thoughtfulness and magnitude of my gift to you. Right? Jesus is good. But Jesus is good because... His Father in heaven is good, and He wants you to know that about His Father. My friend, I I wonder if you have a hard time believing that the God of the Bible is actually good. Do you believe that? Or have you had experiences that would tell you otherwise? Maybe you have measured God by your own experience or the experience of others. Or maybe you look at the war in Ukraine or hunger in the third world or the disintegration of your own family relationships. And you have concluded that this God, I can't believe that this God is good. Not with what he did. Not, if he's sovereign and he's allowing all this out in the world and he's allowing this in my own heart and he's... It feels like he's ruining my relationship. The, the most precious relationships I had, he just tore away from me like they were nothing. How could he do that and be good? I don't buy it. And so you get skeptical and you get angry. Because to your mind, from your own experience, maybe he's cruel, as if he somehow is taking some sadistic pleasure in making you or other people suffer and not letting you know why he's doing that. Now, that's understandable. I think we've all been through things like that to some extent. And sometimes what we see in this world, in our experiences, in the sorrows that fill our own hearts, our unanswered questions about the world, that can lead us to think really hard thoughts about God. It's very easy to be disillusioned with this world and then blame it all on God as if it's all His fault, as if, hey, if you're... If you're supposed to be you, 
if this, is, if this represents you, then why is all that that way? It's very easy to do. In fact, it's way too easy to do. It's all too easy. Just blame God. When I think down deep, we all know whose fault it really is. Whose fault is the mess of this world? It's not God's fault. God is the righteous judge of all the earth, and he will always do right. We're the ones who sinned. God is upright. So I don't know what experiences or feelings or observations may be leading you to those kind of thoughts about God, but as a Christian pastor, just as a Christian, period, I want to encourage you to get your thoughts about God from his own word about himself in the Bible and from Jesus, God's word made flesh, not from your own experiences, your own perceptions of reality or his character. Look, you hate it when other people misjudge your character based on gossip about you that you know is not true or based on other people's perceptions of you from afar when they don't understand your motives or reasons for doing things that you know are righteous and they blame you for as if you're being wicked. You hate it when people do that to you. Don't do that to God. It's clear that none of us know everything like God knows everything. And certainly none of us knows what God is doing like God knows what he is doing. We are very poor judges of God's providence. We see one degree from one angle of what God does. We do not sit on a transcendent perch to see all time and space and relationships in divine perspective. We are not even close to being objective. And besides, our vision of the world is blurred by our own sins and the sins of others. None of us are objective in judging God's ways. That's partly why God sent Jesus in human form from heaven and recorded what Jesus said and did in Scripture. God sent Jesus into the world as the authorized image of God's character and ways so we would know what God looks like and what it looks like when he acts and loves and judges. Each of these disciples abandoned him somehow, failed Jesus somehow, sinned against him somehow. Even while he was on the cross dying to pay the penalty that they deserve for their own sins. And yet here he dumps a boatload of fish on them as soon as they have come to an end of themselves after a whole night of failure. And this was normal in his ministry. This was not a weird thing that he did kind of after he was raised from the dead. Like, okay, let's just kind of not, now let's be nice. No, like he did, he did this kind of thing all the time. His miracles always provided for needs or healed diseases. He was never, as Jeremiah said earlier in the, in the service, he was never just kind of showing off. It was never like evening at the improv, watch Jesus impress you night. It was always functional for people's good. Read it. You read how God sends Jesus to exercise his authority and power for people. And you will see invariably it is good. It is good. Jesus is what God is like. Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is what God is like. Full stop. And if you are evaluating the God of the Bible in any other way than by what you see in Jesus, you are slandering God. And you, you ought to stop that. And you ought to think, okay, I think I'm wrong about God because the way I'm thinking about God is not at all how Jesus is, but Jesus is the image of God. So I must be wrong about God because I know Jesus is right about God. Get your view of God from Jesus. After all, God the Father really is the one who sent Jesus. That's, that's John's whole point. Like father, like son. And as you take God at his word in scripture, he will begin to help you see reality through his eyes. And in the process, you can see him for who he really is. Ninth is invitation. He invites them for fellowship. Jesus is not closed off. 
He's open to those who take him at his word. He wants to be with those who will follow his word in ways. He especially wants to be with those who have come to an end of themselves, like the disciples. Come have breakfast. What a simple, ordinary thing for the extraordinary risen Christ to say. Come have breakfast. The only thing special about that statement is the person who said it. Jesus, the Son of God, invites his people to join him, sit with him, share time with him. Why? What have they done to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. They've done everything not to deserve it. They've done everything to undeserve that. And even what they bring to the table is only what he himself has given them to gather. See, we assume that we need to earn that invitation. If I want Jesus to say, come have breakfast, I've got to do something to earn it. I've got to make myself worthy of that invitation. So if we have sinned somehow, we think it's only proper for us to refuse Jesus' invitation. Come to breakfast. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Not with Jesus. We cannot imagine that Jesus would want us to join him. Others maybe, but not us. Not, not us. Not after what we did or thought or said or wished or felt. But sinner, nothing can be further from the truth. His invitation to us is by sheer mercy and grace. That is how good he is. Because, he is, because his Father in heaven is that good. In fact, John wants to leave us here on the beach with the apostles, wondering with them about just this question, Jesus' identity. Tenth and final thing he reveals to us is identity. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. No one dared because they knew. Not because they didn't know, but because they did know who he was. That's why they didn't ask him. They dared not ask him. They knew him to be the Son of God, the Lord of the Covenant. I mean, what a dynamic. I mean, were they just silent with him the whole time? Like, do you just hear everybody chewing? Did they let him do all the talking? Did they talk about other things? I don't know. John doesn't tell us. I mean, what was going through their hearts and minds? What were they feeling? What was it like in that moment? We can't know for sure, but with the words, none dared to ask him, it's clear They are filled with awe and reverence for him. They're a little afraid. Maybe that's mixed with a little sheepishness, a little sorrow for their sins and their failures of loyalty against him, amazement at how good he's been to them all along. But there had to be a sense of wonder. He's taking the bread and the fish as he had many times before, especially in John 6, feeding of the 5,000. He himself is the bread who came down from heaven, who gave his flesh as bread for the life of the world. This is the Lamb of God, and they know it. This, this right here, this is the real Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? This is what God is like right here. This is what God is like right here. No matter what you feel about him now, this is what God is like. He is the risen, reigning son of God. Jesus is indispensable to to our mission as a church. His authority is all-knowing and all-powerful. He is worthy of all of our devotion. He's merciful towards all of our sins. He includes us in his mission to seek other worshipers for God. He's kind and generous, just like his father, And he invites us into fellowship with him based on faith in his goodness, not faith in our goodness. He can do all this only because he is who he said he is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the light of the world. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life. And he is the one person none of us can do without. Let's pray together. And Father, we confess that we have often gotten our view of you from our own experiences or our own evaluation and observation of this world instead of from Jesus, as you have revealed yourself through him in Scripture. 
we have often relied on self, on our own righteousness, on our own competence. And you teach us here that you will bring us to an end of self in order to teach us that you are the one that we need most and that we cannot do without. So Lord, may we learn quickly that without you, we can do nothing and teach us to express our devotion to you in ways that are meaningful to you in serving and loving you and loyalty to you. May we not doubt your mercy to us. But may we obey your command, your invitation to come and to have fellowship with you. For Jesus' sake, amen.